I'm speaking this morning on the subject of the power of words. In fact, uh, if people could just pop up my first slide there. Um, I've titled it Just Say the Word. And in fact, I was, I was chatting to Rachel earlier this week about this intro and uh, mentioned to her that I was going to be speaking on the power of words. I might even, I said to her, mention that rhyme about sticks and stones and so on. And at that point, I discovered the power of words when Rachel said to me, oh yeah, can you remember when I preached on the power of the tongue back in the summer and uh, I used exactly that rhyme? I have to admit, in my great integrity, I decided not to answer that question, the do you remember bit, and discovered that actually sometimes the power of no words is quite significant as well. Uh, so I've learnt my lesson, um, and I'm, I'm not sure there was a right answer, to be fair, but uh, anyway. So we all know the effect that words can have, and we're going to be looking this morning at the uh, meeting of the centurion with Jesus, with the Messiah. Jesus uses words, as we're seeing through this series that Caleb started last week, more powerfully and more creatively than anyone ever. In fact, one of the things that really struck me when Caleb preached last week, as he was speaking of the story of the leper and the healing of the leper, was actually that Jesus doesn't use words much. All the leper says to him is, if you will it. And Jesus replies, I will. Two words that changed a life and one person's world. Quite awesome in terms of power. In fact, I sometimes wonder, you know, we often say actions speak louder than words. And I sometimes wonder if actually for Jesus, words are actions. We saw that in creation, that God's words were actions. They created the universe. We're going to look at another example of this this week, uh, the story of the centurion, as I've said already. So there are, as we read through this story, just bear in mind there are parallels, very strong parallels, with a similar passage in Luke, where Luke reports a very, very similar set of events, and possibly with John 4 as well, although that's a bit more tenuous, to be fair. So I am going to draw a little bit from Luke as well during the course of this sermon. So let's, let's read the story of the centurion, please. So it's in Matthew Chapter 8, and excuse me turning around, I've just realised I haven't actually put it in my notes, so I'm going to have to look at the screen. So, Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralysed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this soldier, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done, just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. So I'm going to start off my son, we're just actually, you'll be pleased to know, in fact, Austin Sivita will no doubt have something to say about this um, in a positive way. I've only got two points this morning. I know that's breaking with tradition. I think it's the first time I've ever gone that extreme. Thank you very much for that, Ali. 
But just two points. However, I have to confess there are three sub-points to each point. So strictly speaking, I, I think I've... Yeah, as Dave says, it's cheating. So I apologise for that. Um, the first main point is this. The centurion recognised who Jesus was. And you can see from that slide that Pete's popped up for me that there are th the three sub-points to this are he recognised in Jesus a man of authority, a man of power, and a man of compassion. And I think there's a huge amount to learn in this, that actually there's so much about us recognising who Jesus is today. So let's just start with a, a man of authority. This is remote healing in action, isn't it? Caleb mentioned that phrase last week. I already had it in my thinking, so he stole my thunder. But this is Jesus' power being shown without physical proximity. This is actually showing that geography, physicality, presence are not needed, although it's a different type of presence, are not needed for Jesus to work his miracles. For him to actually heal from a distance is no big thing. In fact, I have to say, I think Bridget mentioned this earlier, but the, the uh, four friends who brought the paralyzed man and lowered him through the roof of that building, that, that story that we all know from when we were kids, um, it's often told, isn't it? But I wonder if they'd realised this, would they have gone to quite so much effort, in all honesty? So without laying on hands, without being anywhere near this servant, the centurion asked Jesus to just heal the servant anyway, regardless. But even more than that, because the centurion takes it a step further, doesn't he? This is what he means by authority. In fact, Spurgeon, the, the famous theologian, or I'm not sure if, well, preacher, must have been a theologian as well, he says that the centurion must have seen something about Jesus that showed he had been commissioned by God to do what he did. Jesus had been given, well, he'd been given a task to do, he'd been told to do this task, and therefore he was under, under authority, and that comes across from what the centurion says. But not only that, if you've been commissioned to do a job, you also have authority to carry out that work. That's been, you've been authorised, you've been given that power. I had that experience this week. Um, after Boris made his decision on Monday night, I turned up on Tuesday morning and was told that I had to set up lateral flow testing for everyone on site by this coming Monday. In fact, preferably by the end of the week. I have to confess I failed in that, but Monday was acceptable. So as a result of that, I was given authority to carry out that role. And I had to gather a team. I've had to, I've been commissioned to do that job and to achieve that. And I've been very blessed actually in a team who've done a phenomenal job of something that's very, very complex and difficult to achieve. Um, but as a, as a result, this centurion in this context definitely sees a parallel between him and Jesus. He recognizes that as a centurion, he must be obeyed. He's been given that authority, he himself, is under authority, but he's been given that authority. And to disobey him, effectively, is to disobey the emperor. So in the same way, he believes that Jesus' authority, given to him by God, enables Jesus to do this thing, because he must have the ability to do it, the authority to do it. And he says that while Jesus, or he seems to indicate, that while Jesus is under God's authority, illness, healing, Jesus is over those things. That's what Jesus has authority over. We're not quite sure exactly what he means in this context. Does he mean, for example, that he thinks that angels will be sent by Jesus immediately to go and heal his servant? Or does he just believe in Jesus' power? I suppose it doesn't really matter. Fundamentally, he believes that Jesus has authority to bring supernatural healing without being nearby. And interestingly, the centurion also indicates that in his role, he expects immediate, unquestioning obedience. 
There's no debate, there's no argument. You just go and do it. You do as you are told. So in the same way, Jesus must expect that that illness will be healed immediately, that there will be instant obedience, either from the illness itself or from the angels or, or whatever um, method is going to be used to achieve that. How would it dare to disobey? Because fundamentally, Jesus' authority comes from God. And to disobey Jesus and Jesus' instruction is to disobey God, regardless of distance. So Jesus has authority, and the, the centurion recognises that, recognises that parallel. Secondly, Jesus is a man of power. We can see that already from the stuff that I've said about authority, but it goes beyond that. It goes further than that. The centurion knows, in theory, that Jesus can heal because he's heard about it. Matthew 4, 23 to 25 says that news about Jesus spread all over Syria. People brought to Jesus all who were ill. So clearly the message was out there, wasn't it? The good news that Jesus was able to heal, was able to perform miracles. But the saying still goes, doesn't it, that seeing is believing. We have no evidence that the centurion had actually seen it for himself. But here it becomes apparent that the centurion doesn't need to see anything. One thing that has always struck me is, you know, when we see magic tricks on stage or when we see magicians at work, and I suspect this was, you know, applicable back in um, Jesus' time as well, when there were people pretending to do these, these magical things, there would be a great ceremony about it, wouldn't there? A big show. But actually, all the centurion needs is for Jesus to say the word. That's all he needs. Such great faith. He believes it will be done. There is no evidence of any doubt here. Such is Jesus' power and his faith in that power. He believes Jesus will turn all that power in his servant's direction to work for his servant's healing and deliverance. After all, when you think about it, it's a natural consequence of his belief about Jesus' authority. Because surely, if Jesus has that authority, he's responsible under God for ensuring he carries out his commission. He must be. So therefore, just like him as an imperial centurion being responsible under the emperor, he believes that Jesus must take this responsibility seriously. He must fulfil that commission, or there will be consequences. So there must be an element of that that runs through this as well. However, finally, he does also believe that Jesus is a man of compassion. Bear in mind, just putting this in context, this is a centurion of the Roman army. These guys were not respected in occupied countries. In fact, to be fair, Galilee, strictly speaking at the time, was not occupied by the Romans. It was actually a client kingdom, but it did have the province of Judea, a directly administered province of Rome, right on its borders. There was no occupying army, but Herod Antipas, who was the ruler of, um, the, um, uh, of Galilee at that time, he actually was, he, he basically was a ruler at the whim of the emperor. There is a suspicion that possibly the centurion was seconded to the royal troops, mainly to keep an eye on Herod. And in fact, in AD 39, Caligula decides that Herod Antipas is not doing a good enough job, and he actually banishes him from Galilee and takes Galilee under direct administration. So it's quite possible that the, the centurion is there for a very nefarious purpose, which is basically to spy on Herod. So in many ways, this centurion was actually a living symbol of Jewish oppression. Whether you lived in Galilee or Judea, it was pretty much the same thing. So many at that time would have expected Jesus to reject this guy, especially 
if Jesus really was the long-awaited Messiah who supposedly was going to banish the Romans forever and, and destroy, you know, bring an end to the Roman occupation, surely Jesus would turn this guy away. And actually, the humility that must come from the centurion, and we'll move on to this as my second point, um, so I'm kind of preempting that, but the humility from the centurion, that he actually comes in, and Matthew says, if you look at the actual phrasing, although it doesn't say it in the version that we've read, the centurion pleaded with Jesus. He begged him. He was so desperate for his help. And so it's amazing that this man of compassion didn't reject him or ignore his pleas. It's an indication of the level of Jesus' compassion. He took pity on him and he cared about him. He even offered to visit his home. I'll explain why that's so significant in, in my next point. So he, in fact, I'll mention it now since it fits nicely, but essentially he, he had to break rabbinical law. He had to become unclean if he were to enter a non-Jew's home. But Jesus was willing to do that in order to share God's love and grace. That's how much he cared for and pitied this man. In fact, I was, I've just been reading a book. <coughs> an ex-colleague of mine uh, gave me a book for Christmas um, entitled um, Gentle and Lowly, because two chapters after this, Matthew 11, the only time apparently that Jesus ever refers to his own heart he refers to his heart as gentle and lowly. And it's very easy to look at those two words, and some, some commentators have said they're pretty much the same thing. It's basically saying humble and humble. But it's not actually. When you look in, and this is what this book mentions, when you look into this in detail, lowly is actually more of a reference to Jesus' social position, that he came from a lowly background as a carpenter's son and so on. And in fact, the point that this commentator makes is that that actually makes Jesus profoundly accessible, that he is approachable to, by everybody because he's come from the background that he has. And it's actually an indication of the depth of his compassion that he is willing to even speak to a Roman centurion. And you look at how many freely flocked to him when they heard the news of what Jesus was capable of doing, how many appealed to him, how many came to him. It certainly seems to indicate that Jesus as a man of compassion was so approachable. So that's my first point over at last, you'll be pleased to know, despite the three sub-points, um, that the centurion recognised who Jesus was. Now, it goes further than that, as you might expect. The second point is the centurion recognised who he himself was as well. And there are three sub-points to this, as you'll see from the slide. He recognised his own lack of worthiness. He recognised he was a Gentile. And finally, he recognised that he was a Roman. So he recognised his own position in relation to who the Messiah was. So just to dwell on this first point about Jesus, or sorry, the centurion recognising that he was unworthy, Luke's version of this story seems to suggest that actually the centurion sent some elders of the Jews to Jesus to speak on his behalf. And they actually say when they're introducing the idea of the centurion and the healing that's needed to Jesus, they say, and I quote from Luke, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. I'll just repeat that. This man deserves to have you do this. And yet the centurion himself, both in Luke's version and in Matthew's version, says he does not deserve it. He does not consider himself worthy. He doesn't deserve anything, not even 
to have Jesus come under his roof. He actually turns, as we've seen from that passage, he actually turns that offer down, despite the generosity of Christ that's shown in it. I couldn't help thinking, and this just sort of sprang to mind, I don't know why, um, although someone else has mentioned this story this week after one of those odd coincidences where people mention stories multiple times when you haven't heard of them for years, but what sprang to mind straight away was the story of Naaman in 2 Kings verse 5. He's a commander, a great man, highly regarded, it says, but he had leprosy. And so he goes to see the prophet. I, can't remember, I always get mixed up between Elijah and Elisha, so forgive me, I should have made a note of which one it was, but it's one of the two. He went with money, with gifts, with horses, with chariots to see the prophet. And the prophet said that he should wash himself seven times in the Jordan. And he was so angry, so frustrated, so annoyed at this because of his own arrogance and his own desire to be respected and treated in line with who he was. We don't see, even though this guy probably has a broadly similar status to Naaman, this centurion, we don't see any of that arrogance at all. In fact, the opposite. We see a real humility. Secondly, as a Gentile, Jesus says to him, I will come and heal him. That is such a generous offer. We've referred to that already. The offer was turned down. But you do wonder if the centurion also, as part of that, recognised that actually there were such ceremonial and cultural implications for Jesus coming to his house that actually it wasn't fair to put Jesus in that position. So possibly he recognises what Jewish law comprises, he recognises his own position as a Gentile. There may well have been an element of consideration on his part in not accepting that offer. His humility and faith stand out. He crossed that cultural barrier despite who he was because he had such a strong belief, such a strong faith that Jesus really could heal in this way. And finally, as a Roman, some of Jesus' followers, as I've said already, would assume that a man like the centurion was beyond God's grace. That he was incapable of faith or being part of that banquet in the kingdom of heaven that Jesus then refers to. Because you see, Jesus shows them that they are completely wrong. Even though the centurion himself might have had an element of feeling about that, Jesus actually says to the disciples later in the chapter, he says to them, oh, you of little faith. And he then, in this story, uses that opportunity to put the message across that actually don't assume you've made it just because of your cultural or racial identity. You will not necessarily be at that banquet in the kingdom of heaven. Don't arrogantly assume that just because you are Jewish, you have therefore made it. He actually says in this passage, many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham. Many who you would not expect, who you would never have anticipated being able to join in that feast, will be there and you will be shocked. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out. And he indicates how much they will regret their complacency. We have to be so careful, don't we, that we don't make assumptions about our own status. So just two points, and hopefully those have uh, kept Austin awake. Um, so to move on to the conclusion, and I've got a bit of a story for you in a second just to tell you, but um, Peter, could you just pop up my last slide, please? Do we call on this power enough? Jesus' power, authority, and compassion at the same time as recognising exactly who we are. But just say the word 
and my servant will be healed. There's an attitude there of faith and expectation. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Has Jesus seen that level of faith from us? Do we call on him enough? Do we really believe it? Do we show that level of faith that Jesus indicates is so unusual, actually, to be fair, even amongst his own people? Now, I, I was, um, I'm just going to finish with this story because uh, recently I was... Um, <laughs> This is quite entertaining, actually. I was uh, sat last summer delivering GCSE results to students in a room, one-to-one, one -one, obviously socially distanced, very, very peculiar situation. And I'd been given an RE teacher's room to, to, uh, to do this in. And on her bookshelf, while I was waiting in between students, on her bookshelf was this biography. If Pete could just pop that up, thank you. Trevor Noah. Okay, quite famous in the US, very famous, actually, a bit of a, a comedian, but now hosts The Daily Show. I think he replaced Jon Stewart a few years ago. Um, at best, I would argue agnostic, possibly even an atheist, but brought up by a mum who had such a deep and profound faith. The phrase that he says in the book she used constantly to him was that phrase there, if God is with me, who can be against me? And he said that was just a feature of his childhood and his adulthood, his mum using this phrase constantly, if God is with me, who can be against me? And at the end of the book, he tells the story of what happened to his mum. And you can read this story and you can think, I'm not sure about her life choices. Are her life choices those of a Christian? You can be quite judgmental about this, potentially. But at the end of the book, he tells the story of what happened to her, that actually his mother's ex-husband, not his father, he, it was his stepdad, but an ex-husband, lay in wait for her when she was coming back from church due to some um, mental, some psychological issues he had, but also some great antagonism that he had towards her. And he lay in wait with her and she came home from church with her, her, her new family after she remarried. He lay in wait with a gun. And he shot her. He shot her, first of all, in the backside. And she fell on the floor. And uh, this is just some context before I read you this part of the story, which is quite profound. He shot her in the backside. She fell on the floor. And then he stood over her to shoot her, pointing his gun directly at her head. The gun misfired four times. The bullets literally dropped out of the gun. And she leapt up and, and hobbled as quickly as she could towards her car. She jumped in the car and unfortunately he fired a final bullet that actually shot and it went straight through her head. They rushed her to hospital. And as soon as they got her to hospital, um, Trevor Noah himself was in the US at the time. He decided to make it big on the comedy circuit and his, his step or his half-brother phones him to report what's happened. And he says this in his book, when the doctors looked at what had happened to her in the hospital, the bullet missed the spinal cord by a hair. It missed the medulla oblongata. It travelled through her head just underneath the brain, missing every major... Sorry, I get quite... Um, I've been praying that I wouldn't while I'm doing this story. I just find it profound. Um, sorry. Missing every major vein, artery and nerve. It was headed straight for her left eye socket, but at the last second it slowed down, hit her cheekbone instead, shattered the cheekbone, ricocheted off and came out through her left nostril. The bullet took off only a tiny flap of skin on the side of her nostril, and it came out clean with no bullet fragments left inside. She didn't even need surgery. They stopped the bleeding, stitched her up at the back, stitched her up at the front, and let her heal. My mother was out of the hospital in four days. She was back at work in seven. 
And then he goes on to say, the final piece of the story came from my mum, who could only tell us her side after she woke up. She remembered Abel, her ex-husband, pulling up and pointing the gun at, her, at, her, um, at Andrew, who was uh, Trevor Noah's uh, half-brother. She remembered falling to the ground after getting shot in the backside. Then Abel, the ex-husband, came and stood over her and pointed his gun at her head. She looked up and looked, him, looked at him straight down the barrel of the gun. Then she started to pray. Sorry, doing it again. And that's when the gun misfired. Then it misfired again. Then it misfired again and again. She jumped up, shoved him away, and ran for the car. Andrew, Trevenor's stepbrother, leapt, uh, sorry, half-brother, leapt in beside her, and she turned the ignition, and then her memory went blank. To this day, nobody can explain what happened. This is from a guy who doesn't really believe in Jesus. Even the police didn't understand, because it wasn't like the gun didn't work. It fired, and then it didn't fire, and then it fired again for the final shot. Anyone who knows anything about firearms will tell you that a 9mm handgun cannot misfire in the way that gun did. But at the crime scene, the police had drawn little chalk circles all over the driveway, all with spent shell casings from the shots. Abel fired. And then these four bullets, completely intact from when he was standing over my mum, and they fell out. Nobody knows why. My mum's total hospital bill came to 50,000 rand. I paid it the day we left. As we packed up her things to leave, I was going on about how insane the whole week had been. You're lucky to be alive, I told her. I still can't believe you didn't have any health insurance. She said, oh, but I do have insurance. You do? I said, yes, Jesus. Jesus? Jesus. Jesus is your health insurance. If God is with me, who can be against me? Okay, mum. Trevor, I prayed. I told you I'd pray. I don't pray for nothing. You know, I said, for once I can't argue with you. The gun, the bullets, I can't explain any of it, so I'll give you that much. Then I couldn't resist teasing her with one last little jab. But where was your Jesus to pay your hospital bill, eh? I know for a fact that he didn't pay that. She smiled at me and said, you're right. He didn't. But he blessed me with the son who did. Just an awesome story. And it just reminds me again, just if Pete could just pop up that final slide, sorry, the previous slide again. Just want to ask that question. Do we call enough on God's, on Jesus' power, authority and compassion? recognizing who we are at the same time. I just wonder at the moment, do we need to do that more? Ali's ready to go. I'm going to hand over to him, but just, I think uh, Dave's going to follow up on this with, uh, with, with some more. But um, it's really struck me as I've, I've uh, prepared this sermon, it's really spro- spoken to me about just how much there is for us to call on that we just don't. Or we call on it only in desperate moments like Trevor's mum did. Thank you very much. <laughs>